matchmaker. Welcome to Subtitles, where we spike the canon in music and movies. In each episode, we will offer up replacements for each title in the top 100 of a well-known, well-regarded ranking, and we'll walk away with a pair of subtitles which we think deserve more acclaim and to which attention must be paid. I'm Tim. I'm replacing the entries on the 2007 AFI 100 Years 100 Movies list, starting with number 100 and working up. And I'm Matt. I'm replacing the top 100 entries on Spin Magazine's 2015 list of the top 300 albums from 1985 until 2015, starting with number one and working down. Here's how this works. The two of us have gone through each list, decided on a theme of the original entry, and have come up with a pair of potential replacement titles which share that theme. We'll talk about that original entry. Sometimes we'll regret that we have to get rid of it. Sometimes we'll rejoice in being able to drop it, but this podcast is not just another dissection of an outmoded list. In part one of this episode, Matt had two new albums to talk through, and I made my choice for the subtitles album list. Now in part two, I have two new movies to discuss, and Matt will decide which of them deserves a place on the subtitles movie list. Sometimes I'll have listened to the albums, sometimes he'll have seen the movies. At the end of the day, what matters is how well we sold the titles. And at the end of some of those days, one of us will want to bop the other for that choice. Once we finish these lists off, we'll do some fun activities with these new lists we've collaborated on. But before we can get there, we have to do this. Today's title to be replaced is the second Marx Brothers entry on the AFI list. This one is the 1933 Leo McCary joint Duck Soup, which, as always, they, they can get whatever good director they want. Uh, and of course, Leo McCary, a, a really very strong one. But it doesn't matter that much as long as the Marx Brothers are in it. So for this for this episode, what I'm going to do for each of these movies is start off by by providing like kind of a a plot synopsis if if the movie were not criminally insane, uh, to borrow a phrase from the Avalanches. And for Duck Soup, it kind of goes like this. So a nation in crisis called Fredonia appoints a new head of state. But he is unaware that the ambassador of a rival country sees this as an opportunity to topple Fredonia. And that is literally what happens in this movie, that there is this kind of uh, this kind of slow burn plot where Groucho Marx's Rufus T. Firefly is is named the new president of Fredonia. Um, and he is sort of put in in what I think is a really fascinating choice. He has made the, the new president because the country is basically being bankrolled by a single wealthy widow at this point, and she wants him to be in charge, so he gets to be in charge. A very interesting way to begin your story, a very, a very pointed note about what rich people can and can't do on our political system. Um, and his opposite number is Ambassador Trentino, played by Louis Calern, who is Watching him in anything else after knowing that he is in Duck Soup is kind of incredible. Um, he's, a, he's a wonderful actor, a terrific character actor because his nose is taller than I am. And he has this, this, really, this really like dignified air to him, which makes him a great fit in, in, in sort of noirish movies like uh, Notorious or The Asphalt Jungle. But here he is playing essentially boy Margaret Dumont, who is sort of on the, 
on the wrong end of a lot of Marx Brothers hijinks, and he spends some time trying to figure out how he can manufacture enough of a uh, diplomatic crisis between Fredonia and Sylvania that he can use that as a way for his country to take over Fireflies, but he does not he does not bet on, on the Marx Brothers going full Marx Brothers on this movie, which I do think is maybe even pretty plainly their best one. I'm, I think I would have this higher up the, the list if I were making an American movies list than the AFI has it. But I don't know that there is another movie that I would have from them that's higher. Like, I think this kind of has to be number one. Um, it, it's, it's got everything. <laughs> he said doing the... Um, the, the, the Bill Hader on SNL voice. This movie has everything. Stefan, you Philistine. <laughs> That's the name of the guy. So to, to borrow from, from Stefan, uh, this movie has everything. It has Groucho Marx with what is probably my favorite performance of his, like all of the, which seems silly to say, like all of the Marx brothers performances are kind of the same. Um, and he has, I think he has, like, maybe even better one-liners in some other movies. Like, maybe in Animal Crackers, you can get, like, better singular Groucho Marx one-liners. But I just I just sort of adore this character, um, Rufus T. Firefly, who is obviously incompetent, um, deeply insulting. Just all of these, all of these things. And, and I think he's just really good in that particular mode here. Um... This has some of my favorite Chico Marx puns, on the other hand. Like, if this is not necessarily the great Groucho Marx movie, this is definitely one of the better ones for Chico, who who spends most of it as a double agent, but not well, and spends about as much time being a double agent as he does following Harpo around at a peanut-slash-lemonade stand. Um, it It is a, a terrific... A, a terrific um, performance from him as well. Uh, I do think that the dynamic between between him and Groucho in this movie is best summed up with the line, um, look at Ciccolini, you may think he's an idiot, but don't let that fool you. He really is an idiot. Just a, a, a perfect summation of what's going on between them. It's a great Harpo movie. Uh, less music, but more just weird let Harpo cook kind of stuff. Um, I mean, this movie is not even 70 minutes long. Uh, depending on who you ask, it's either 68 minutes or 69 minutes, which I think is pretty nice. But, like, this movie is is just long enough to include Harpo doing his own adventures again, like tormenting the bejesus out of a poor guy who's just trying to sell lemonade. Um, there's also a very strange little thing that happens in the last 10 minutes of the movie where Harpo becomes the Paul Revere of Fredonia, but also ends up in bed with a woman and a horse. Just a, a deeply, deeply unsettling thing that happens at the end of this movie. Um, I will say that you can sort of tell that the end is nigh for Zeppo in this movie. Um, playing Firefly secretary, there is not even a girl for him to woo. Um, I, I just kind of think that you can tell that he's on the way out, but the other three are really in fine form in, in this movie, which is, like I said, a lot of it is just a venue for the same bad puns. Uh, I've, I've always been very, 
uh, fond of some of Chico's puns when he is on trial. Um, for example, the one where he is trying to say that he objects to something, but it sounds like he is abject, which is a very good pun, which is underused. Uh, I also love the one where he is he is mistaking what somebody is talking about in, in terms of war. So he is responding to someone who says that war would mean a prohibitive increase in our taxes. And Chico says, hey, I've got an uncle that lives in Texas. And the prosecutor, the, the guy who's talking about it, is like, no, I'm talking about taxes, money, dollars, dollars. That's where my uncle lives, dollars, taxes. And it's, it's just like, I don't know. There's so much about this movie that I love. We talked about the Marx Brothers before with Night at the Opera. Um, a movie which we kind of if I remember correctly, steered away from some of the pure anarchy of the, of the Marx Brothers a little bit because the, the theme was about this, the sort of slower moments. Um, there, there are no slower moments in this one. This one is just full-bore, madcap, let's blow everything up, um, let's lead an entire Congress trial. I don't even know. Government doesn't actually matter in this one. Um in the rousing chorus of we got guns, they got guns, all God's chillins got guns. Just a, a, a really incredible moment, <laughs> which, which can at once be one of the most famous moments in like movie history, but also can be just not talked about enough. Um, I was going to, I was going to get into a couple of things about this that I like specifically find really enjoyable, but I'm sure you have favorites here. I, you named several of them already. The, I don't know. I think the he really is that stupid line is my favorite one every time. Because um, it's so simple, but it just like it's a double turn on the pun itself. I, I think that one's great. Um, the moment, do you realize I had my dessert wrapped in those papers? I think is a fun one. <laughs> um, like, not even a pun there, just, like, such a stupid setup and joke um, about important, <laughs> what is it, important portfolio or war papers or something, but, um, I mean, I, that's why I love the energy of this one. Like, I think what you said earlier, that there are other ones with, like, I think better distinct one-liners, um, and even probably a, a more constant stream of puns, perhaps, um, but I don't think that's from like lack of wit here. I think this one is just so, just so freaking funny in places that, um, or even the whole setup to like, so you refuse to shake hands with me. <laughs> um, yeah, like I like moments like that where it's just these incredible turns, um, or not non sequiturs, but just like it plays with expectations very well. I think. Yeah, I think I hadn't even thought about this one. Like. I can't understand how they put this many jokes into 70 minutes. I just didn't think it was possible. Um, and by didn't think it was possible, I mean I grew up on this movie. I knew it was possible. But, like, watching this at age 13 as opposed to watching this as a 30-year-old is just a completely different experience. Um, and at 13, you kind of take it for granted that they'll do it. And at 30, you're just like, how do they have this much material? But also, how did they get it in this quickly? Um but I, I adore the, the handshaking setup in which there is this running gag where 
Trentino and Firefly will insult each other, and then they're supposed to shake hands on it, and they never do manage to shake hands. This always ends with Groucho just slapping Trentino. Um, and my favorite one is the last one, which ultimately leads to, to war. Um, and you can tell it's going to lead to war because, as always, Trentino says, this means war, and I, which is a, a great little thing on its own. But before they're supposed to shake hands with each other, Groucho is just, like, going off about, this is a, this is a really wonderful opportunity for, for us to, you know, extend hands as, as brothers in fellowship and, you know, just sort of let it be known that we don't, we don't bear any ill will to each other. And then he starts imagining to himself, well, what, what happens if, if I put out my hand and, and, and he does not put out his hand? And what if he makes me look like an idiot? And then when Trentino actually shows up before he has a chance to do anything, Groucho just sort of yells at him and says, like, so you'll, you'll reject my offer of fellowship and just smacks him. Um, in that moment, he invents Twitter. It's really an incredible thing, <laughs> just sort of watching someone make up this scenario and then getting mad about it. It's, it is very funny in this movie in the way that it's not funny when it happens on Twitter like 30,000 times a day. I guess if I can, I thought of two other ones. Well, yes, three, yes. but I'll just spitball here. Um, the all right. Um, I was trying to decide what order to do these in. I think there's just a a joke that stands on its own between Ciccolini and the prosecutor. Um, the one has a trunk but no key, weighs two thousand pounds, and lives in a circus. That's irrelevant. Irrelevant. Hey, that's the answer. Um, the the other. Well, I was also thinking of the fetch me a four year old. I can't make heads or tails of this. <laughs> but the the I guess the biggest additional one I was thinking of because um, I think it it speaks to what I was trying to say a minute ago that like just the turns of these jokes are what really gets me with this one and this one sets up and delivers the joke one joke that we might expect but then takes it like an even for, like turns the wheel again and it's so quick at that what you were saying that like this this packs so much into not into a very nice running time um but the i'm, I'm sick of messages from the front do we ever get a message from the side uh which you would think is the joke, and then General Smith reports a gas attack. <laughs> he wants to know what to do. Was a teaspoonful of bicarbonate of soda and half a glass of water. <laughs> which, which is one that that definitely slew me on this particular rewatch. Um, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna go into the theme this week, which is zany brainy, which is appropriate for everybody who ever misses the '90s, which I guess is the whole internet. Uh, but I'm looking at, at movies in which everybody appears to be insane, or at least what everyone is doing appears to be insane. Uh, but also there's, there's a lot of intelligence to these movies that we're going to talk about. So I've, I've stuck with a genre pretty hard, uh, which is comedy, and especially like screwball comedy. Not that, not that Duck Soup is a classic screwball, because the Marx Brothers are really a, a genre all their own, I think. Um... But the two replacement titles, which we're going to talk about, are both screwballs. It is in this this general vein. Um, but I think this movie does a lot that is incredibly smart, and in a time um, 
between world wars, but also very cognizant of what's going on in Europe and how fragile all of that is. Um, how very, how very clear it is that as Mussolini is on the rise and, and Hitler takes power in the same year that this movie comes out, you can just sort of tell that they've got, they've got an eye on the world on current events and on, on what's happening. Um, you know, not that I'm checking the actual date of release. Like, I think, I think it is distinctly possible that they could have been like making this with Hitler in mind. Like this comes out in late 1933. Um, movies used to take 15 minutes to put together once upon a time and not two years to, to do all the visual effects. But the, the actual movie is, is responding to a rise in totalitarianism, um, responding to, to a, an, an unstable world that people are not ready to, to admit is that unstable just yet. In that way, I really like the last ten minutes or so of this movie, which are which are not funny, except when you get a wonderful, like, we have a gas attack oncoming. Just like, what a dumb nine-year-old boy joke that just absolutely hits the sweet spot. But there are things about, about the sequence where the Marx Brothers and Margaret Dumont basically fight Sylvania by themselves that I think are just incredibly intelligent. One of them, I love that they're all wearing different uniforms every time out. Like, every time you cut between scenes with these guys, they'll be wearing a different distinctive uniform from, like, a different war from a different country. Um, and this idea that it's all kind of the same, and that they all they all just sort of blend together, and they all feel pretty meaningless when you just sort of look at them on in a row and, and having that symbolized in the costume choices, which get, which I think get even more weird as the, as the sequences go. Like at the end of this, I'm pretty sure Groucho's got like a coonskin cap on. Like he's like reverted to full Davy Crockett, Daniel Boone stuff. And, and that in its own way is just like really wonderful. Um, meanwhile, Zeppo, who is supposed to be the, the straight man and, like, the heartthrob, has basically gotten down to his, like, his undershirt. So, <laughs> war is, war is very much, um, they blend together, but it's also about, like, this sort of, like, macho appearance thing, um, about looking good in the uniform, or in Zeppo's case, looking good without the uniform, that's, that's kind of the point. Um, and then, there is this... This other moment at the end of, of the movie, it's and this this must be like literally the last five minutes, but things are looking bad for the Freedonians, so they are playing a game of what I would call eeny meeny miny mo, except Chico's version is not eeny meeny miny mo. It is Haranza Tuza Threza Square. Like it's like this I don't understand where they got it from, or who came up with it, or if that was what Eeny, Meeny, Miny, Mo used to be, but that's his game. And someone has to get a message out to go for help. And he's playing, he's like doing Eeny, Meeny, Miny, Mo, except every time he keeps landing on himself, until eventually, he's like, wait, I have it. He goes, Ramza, what? And like points to Harpo, who is now stuck with going on the mission. And Groucho like shakes his hand and congratulates him and says... You know, you can you can be a hero and save your country, and while you're out there risking life and limb, we'll be in here thinking what a sucker you are, which is the most perfect distillation 
of what actual soldiers deal with and what the political class that sends soldiers to war is think are thinking like you go forth you go do your hero stuff as dumb as that is man we will be back here thinking that you're a sucker for not being you know in relative safety the fact that they then accidentally like send Harpo into a broom closet that is filled with fireworks or ammunition or anything, and like most of what Harpo does at the end of the movie is dodge like fireworks, is also very special. <laughs> but like just that that incredibly smart moment of the politicians get to you know stay in their bunker and and remain safe while you send out common people to do the actual work of war is is literally out of all quiet on the Western Front. Like, that idea is, is very potent there. Other thoughts on, like, smart things they're doing politically? There's, like, one really smart, like, slapsticky sequence I was going to get to, but otherwise, otherwise I was set there unless you wanted to add a thing. No, I think whatever else you have is... Uh... I guess I don't want to risk going too in on this movie, but I think, I mean, what you've said is, I think, right. Sort of what I think about it, and just kind of the, I don't know, like, I do love that idea of you go out and do your hero thing, we'll be here. Um, the initial setup of how someone with money can just wreak complete havoc um, without even having to think about it, really. And... I think just the zaniness of it all, right, as a delivery system for jokes, but also speaks to just the absurdity of what this stuff is anyway. Like, we get all these movies about how calculated and smart and clever all this planning is, and, like, half the time you just luck into something, or, like, you're dodging fireworks and manage not to die. Like, I just, so I just think the setup of the movie itself is politically clever in that way. All right, and the the smart slapsticky thing. This is maybe my favorite like physical gag that the Marx Brothers ever do. Um, Chico and Harpo are, are again they are supposed to be spies for for the Sylvanians, but Chico is also the Secretary of War for Fredonia, which is a job he gets basically at random. Like it's 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 really delightful watching that. But the two of them are supposed to go into Margaret Dumont's house. And steal the the plans of war from from a safe that she has, and so they do so very loudly. Like they're supposed to, they're supposed to be sneaking in there and like you know doing spy stuff, um, and being warned that if they're caught, they'll be in great danger. There's someone who tells them, um, you know, that if you're if you're found, you'll be lost, to which Chico responds, that's crazy, how can I be lost if I'm found? Which is just, just another one of those, those wonderful, like, zing moments. Um, it, it might be my favorite one of his from this entire movie. But after they've made an incredible amount of noise and, like, literally set off a Sousa march inside this mansion, they go through and they're, like, dr they're both eventually dressed up as Groucho in a nightgown. So at some point, there are three of them wandering around the house. And there's this really delightful sequence um, where you have Chico, like, breaks through a mirror, basically. And he and, and Groucho are essentially trying to fool each other into revealing that they are, in fact, the wrong guy. 
So they are like mirroring each other without a mirror and doing increasingly baroque, strange little dances in the across the way from each other. But it also doesn't matter because at one point they they come back with hats and they have different hats and one guy drops the hat and then like gives it back to the other one and the other guy like sort of nods and like thank you yeah like it's it's something where where I think they understand something about just being funny that it doesn't it doesn't actually have to make sense if the joke is good enough um, that there is a certain brilliance in if this will make people laugh if this if this is funny enough to keep your attention then whether or not this makes a lick of sense is is absolute gravy, and it kind of is funnier if it doesn't, um, which I think is just a, a very bright choice. Not that not that they weren't practiced at this point in doing ridiculous things and, and saying the plot doesn't matter, the story doesn't matter, the character doesn't matter, all that matters is the gag or the one-liner or, or whatever. But I just I just love that, and to me, it's it's a very pure distillation of what has to be an incredibly practiced form, like the the jokes they do, the timing, like you don't you don't luck into timing like that. You have to practice and rehearse that kind of that kind of like rapid fire dialogue, and then to hit the timing every single time in a movie, you have to, you have to like work on that. And then there's obvious like work and rehearsal that goes into, well, what silly little thing are we going to do in the mirror across from each other? Like, it's it's clearly practice, but it comes off as very natural, and whether or not it makes any sense, it is never-endingly funny uh, in a movie that is getting close to 90 years old. All right, so our two, our two replacement movies for this episode, uh, as, as promised, both screwball comedies. One of them is from 1942, so a movie which is pretty close to this one, all things considered, and by the person who gave us Sullivan's Travels in our last episode, that's Preston Sturgis, and he makes The Palm Beach Story in in 42, and that's, that's our first replacement title. And then the other one is an update on the screwball comedy, which is really just a screwball comedy that happens to be made way outside of the time when those were actually in fashion, and that is What's Up, Doc, the 1972 Peter Bogdanovich uh, film. Palm Beach Story. We will start here, because the Palm Beach Story is actually, it's kind of a, it's kind of a normal plot. And what I like about this movie is that it does have basically normal people at its center, which is not which is not usually the case for a screwball comedy. So for those of you who who were around for the Bringing Up Baby episode and just need, like, a recap or people who, who have not listened. But the idea behind a screwball comedy is that if you're sane, you're not allowed in it. That the kind of things that people do in these, in these incredibly fast-paced, very witty, very physically... Um, demanding kind of comedies that are like goofy in words and deed no one gets involved in these situations if they are normal you have to be strange you have to be a truly strange person to get involved in whatever kind of hijinks or shenanigans that you're you're gonna have to walk into the palm beach story here's my here's my if this were a normal movie kind of thing this would be the synopsis 
A housewife tries to divorce her husband and goes to Palm Beach to establish the separation and even meets someone else. But the Enterprise is complicated when he gets to Palm Beach first. And that is the basic idea of the Palm Beach story, um, a movie which stars Joel McRae as, as Tom. Um, Joel McRae, who, of course, is the, is the star of last episode's film, Sullivan's Travels. And he is married to uh, Jerry, who is played by Claudette Colbert, um, who is someone we will talk about in a future episode a lot. But she is like, for people who are, who are thinking, ah, yes, the person who is in It Happened One Night, which is the screwball comedy that wins Best Picture back in 34. Yes, that's her. Sort of, these are like two practice geniuses of the genre, basically. Um, two people who definitely understand how this is supposed to work. And they play, they play basically normal people. Um, he is, he has sort of a zany idea for an airport in the sky where like, that's his, that's his big idea. That's his invention. And he's trying to sell it. And of course people aren't buying it because it's prohibitively expensive and it sounds weird, but he does have a cute model that goes with it. So he has that going for him. But the two of them get married. They've been married like five years. And Jerry is at a point where she's like, I like you. You like me. But we're familiar with each other. There's not a lot of heat in our marriage anymore. Uh, we don't have children. And most importantly, she she's looking at him and saying, like, you're not going to ever be able to provide for the lifestyle I want. Um, and there is a line in there where she tells him that Men don't grow smarter as they grow older, they just lose their hair. And that's like the kind of thing that she's thinking about, that she is ready to have an exciting, moneyed life while she's still of an age that she can enjoy it. And and the two of them go out for dinner, and, and she eventually gets on a train. She has to avoid him, um, because he doesn't want her to go. He, he wants to, to stay married, but she's... She's very sure that she knows what's best for him, and she decides that she's going to establish residency in Florida and, and get divorced from there. He gets some advice from the self-titled Weenie King, um, which is the same idea as Abe Froman, the Sausage King of Chicago, except funnier, because the Weenie King, I'm going to make sure that I get this right, um, but he, he tells... He tells um, someone at one point, I'm the weenie king, invented the Texas weenie, lay off him, you'll live longer. And he is just sort of filled with this kind of, this kind of country old man wisdom, which I really like. So it, it, in the early going, he's the one who pays off all the debts that Tom and, and uh, Jerry have. And it is very perfect that they are named Tom and Jerry, incidentally. Um, but he pays off all the debts and then he finally like bankrolls Tom's, uh, flight to get to Palm Beach before she can get there via train. But that's, he's an example, I think of the, of the way that Sturgis sets this up, which is to say, you can have normal people at the center as long as everyone around them is absolutely insane. And the self-titled weenie king, who is so deaf just cannot hear a word anyone says and tells people to lay off them, you'll live longer. 
is, is the first example we get. Um, eventually, Jerry meets someone on the train. No. You know what? We're going to skip that for a second, because she has to get on the train first, and the crazies who get her on the train are the Ale and Quail Club, which is a group of, of hunting buddies who all get on the train together, who proceed to get extremely drunk and literally shoot up the train. Like, there's a... There's, like, a matchup in in the... in the dining car, I think, where two guys are basically challenging each other to, like, shooting crackers out of the air. So there's, like, a guy behind the bar who's, like, throwing crackers out, and, like, they're yelling pull, and at first they're just pretending to shoot, and then they do start shooting... And it kind of just goes from there. Like, she gets on the train because of these guys. She manages to, like, wheedle her way in and, like, do her I'm-so-pretty-please-help-a-girl-out kind of routine that, you know, you can you can envision. And they, they go forth and destroy a train car and sing A Hunting We Will Go as they get all of their hounds out of storage at one point to go look for her. It is, it is absolutely out of this world strange. But this is how she meets a very nice man, who is also kind of crazy in his own way, I think. His name is John D. Hackensacker III, uh, and he's played by Rudy Valley, who is probably playing even more normal than anyone else. But they meet because she's trying to hide in the sleeping car, and she steps on his face twice as she's trying to get up there and, like, breaks his little glasses. Later on, once she figures out how wealthy he is, because he's like an oil baron, basically, um, Jerry says, I would step on your face, to which he replies, that's quite all right, I rather enjoyed it, which is a, a terrific little double entendre that, I miss, I miss double entendres, but anyway. He, tend, he seems to be a basically normal person, except for the fact that he's rich and this makes him crazy. Um, he spends a lot of time buying her things, and, and he falls for her very quickly. All of this stuff. He has a sister who goes from man to man at high speed. Uh, his sister, Maud, who is played by Mary Astor and a very a very not Mary Astor role. She's, like, screamingly funny in this, and I'm so used to her being this much more serious presence. But she has this um, anonymously European guy named Toto following her around, and for those of us who love Hot Fuzz and the guy who communicates entirely by saying Yarp, um, he spe Toto speaks a language that no one else can quite understand, but... When he says yes and no, it usually comes out as some form of yeets or neets. <laughs> and the only person who can understand him is Maud, who, who will say things like neets to that Toto, and he says yeets. And it is, it is very, very funny watching them sort of bounce off each other. Obviously, they all find each other in Palm Beach. Further shenanigans go... I assume this is not one that you found before, but there are a lot of individual elements in here that I imagine you would like. Yeah, it's, I, I haven't seen it before. It does sound more like... I mean, right, we don't really have screwballs in the same way anymore, if at all, but it does sound like sort of a proto-example of the surrounds 
write a couple of the straight players with just absolutely insane people and you get kind of your audience surrogate that way but then you're like dipped into this crazy world but able to see it from a I don't know a different lens than like the Marx Brothers who are just like it's all insane all the time and um I don't know, I can definitely see that playing out in a lot more stuff now. Even if you go through like some of the like 60s and 70s schlock films um, to just how a lot of comedies are structured now where it's, at the beginning anyway, relatively normal people put into increasingly absurd circumstances and whether that rubs off on them or not. So it does sound very, I don't know, it sounds familiar in that way, I suppose. Um, but just, yeah, there are a ton of elements in this that I, I know would speak to my my sensibilities immediately. And I just enjoy Screwball, man. So, like, <laughs> any variation of the form is going to be fun to me. All right. Well, speaking of things that you like, and I'm a little scared to even mention this because I'm afraid that it won't matter what I say about What's Up, Doc, if I say it. But there's a there's a sort of anxiety I get from watching this movie and an anxiety and absurdism that reminds me primarily of too many cooks like that's kind of what this most reminds me of and and the reason why this seems out of the blue is because I've skipped the credit sequence in the credit sequence you can watch uh, Claudia Colbert preparing to marry Joel McRae there's a big rush on both sides. You're sort of watching her get ready, him get in the car, everybody's late, everybody's in a rush. And then there's a cut to Claudette Colbert in the in the closet, like sort of bound and gagged and trying to get out of the closet. And you realize that there are two of her. And that one of them is marrying Tom. But the other one has been literally kept from doing so. We are given to understand that Tom has married the wrong woman. Which, incredibly, you kind of forget about over the course of the movie. But at the same time, it, it casts this, this incredible strangeness on it. Because you know that he has married the wrong person who has now been carrying on this ruse for five years and somehow it has never actually been talked about. This is kind of what I mean about the Marx Brothers thing where like it doesn't matter it doesn't matter if it makes sense as long as the joke is good enough. I don't know that this is a joke as, as much as it's incredibly eerie and strange but like that particular opening like watching one of them go to the church get married in this big dress with the big the big flower displays and everybody all all there and, and witnessing it. And then having that cut between someone who is kicking her way out of a closet, who is the exact same as her, is, is uncanny. I think that's the word I want for it. It's a very, very strange thing. And then at the end of the movie, it turns out that she and Tom both have twin siblings. So there is another Tom who marries Maud, and there's another Jerry who marries John. And 
Tom and Jerry stay together through all of this and, like, a, appear at this double wedding where there are two Joel McCrays and two Claudette Colbert's on screen at the same time. And if you're thinking to yourself, this sounds incredibly confusing and like a weird way to end a movie, you would be right, because it's a very weird way to end the movie, and they kind of say, oh, you're twins? In the last, I kid you not, 90 seconds of the movie. And, like, they, they bring it up after having totally ignored this for the entire film. But it is, it is in some ways kind of a perfect ending, because Tom and Jerry have to stay together for the purposes of the genre. But what I love about it is that it can't come up with an actual reason why Jerry would stay with Tom when there is a gazillionaire who is trying to, to marry her. And it can't understand why Tom would stay with Jerry when she's given up on him like this. And so it has to come up with the most ridiculous twist possible, which is that these strange and unsettling events of the opening credits which is its own wild thing to say, but the strange and unsettling events of the opening credits have to resolve themselves in they had twins all along in the final 90 seconds of the movie, which is really quite special. Um, thoughts on the too many cooks aspect of this? Uh, not enough snarf is my immediate assessment, I suppose. <laughs> I really like that it, unsettles it from the very beginning rather than like you get to the end and it's just like oh how do we shuffle the decks and make it work um which either way that's obviously a choice but i like a movie that bookends with a whole bunch of weirdness and like what is happening and i guess the meta consideration of the screwballness of the genre itself um how it is typically is romantic comedies really but taken to absurd extremes and this one just i i mean right you put you got to it and being worried about even mentioning this but just anything that is a rumination on itself is intriguing to me and i hope i mean i guess someone's tied up in a closet i hope it's not as violent as too many cooks but like just the yeah, the sheer commentary on form as it's doing its own thing and committing to the form itself is, uh, I don't know, that seems like apex screwball. Yeah, it's, a, it's an extremely modern decision. Um, I mean, we talked about only Preston Sturgis could get away with a movie like Sullivan's Travels, I think, someone who who could sort of look at things and say, well, things are pretty bad for a lot of people, and it's not necessarily defeatism to suggest that making people laugh is the, you know, is as good as it can get for a while. That that in itself is, is a really dark thought, um, and not a, a sort of self-congratulating thought. Well, it's it's interesting to watch this movie where you see this guy who is making a career out of putting together these essentially light comedies, and and just sort of actively deconstruct them from the very beginning of his movie. It's it's a really smart choice. It's a very weird choice. The first time the first time I watched this, I kind of let it go and I was just like whatever, we'll figure it out later. And the second time it really makes the entire comedy feels feel a little more sinister. 
which is a very strange thing to feel while you are laughing about, I don't know, there's there's one line where, where Maud says that everything ends except Roosevelt, uh, which I think is a very, very funny moment. Like, there, it's it's witty, too. It's not just a good concept. It's not just people blowing holes in a train. There are, there are some interesting... There's some interesting political commentary here and there. There's also a very good monologue where where Jerry explains to Tom that sex enters into everything, um, which I like, where she's sort of saying, like, I don't think he would have given me the money if I had stubby little legs like an alligator, you know? Like, <laughs> there's, a certain, there's a certain look that men give you, um, which I don't, I don't think I had heard dissected like that. In, in a movie before 1942, I'm sure it's I'm sure it's being talked about in other places, but not with that sort of knowing quality. And it's a knowing quality about like what these movies do anyway, where these things only happen to these people because they because they they look like Cary Grant and they look like Claudette Colbert, and 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 that's an important um, important reason why. Why we're watching them anyway, because they're hot. Because you wouldn't watch someone who wasn't as good-looking as Clark Gable get into these things, or Gene Arthur, or, or whoever else. Um, anything else about about Palm Beach story before we, we head to San Francisco? No, I think that one's really interesting, and in that it's 30 years before this next one is... Uh, I don't know, I, <clears throat> tracking potential differences should be an interesting kind of side game in this. All right. So our next, our next film is the 1972 screwball. What's up doc uh, directed by Peter Boganovich and primarily written by Buck Henry. Though Henry is, Henry is not the only credited writer on this, but he is kind of the lead figure. Um, Henry of course is, is kind of a, a legend in comedy anyway. What I think is really special about this movie is that it is just a great screwball comedy in a time where no one had really made just a flat-out straight screwball comedy. All right, so the the literal synopsis of this one I think is kind of the, the simplest of the bunch, but What's Up Doc is a movie about four identical suitcases, which... Uh, are carrying musical rocks, clothes, jewelry, and top-secret documents, respectively. They're mixed up by a bunch of unwitting people in San Francisco. So the, the literal plot of this thing is just about people mixing up their suitcases. And there are certain people who are after particular suitcases, and the fact that there are four, they're pretty distinctive, they're all like plaid that there are four identical ones in the same hotel, pretty much, in San Francisco at the same time is, is incredible. But the joke wants what the joke gets. This is the the longest one of the bunch that we're talking about. So at 94 minutes, this is a, this is a very brisk movie, um, but somehow still longer than either one of the other movies we've discussed. This one takes the time never to really explain how the suitcases get from one person to another. This is the apotheosis of it doesn't matter if it's funny. Like, if you were to actually sit there and kind of trace, well, how did they get from this room to this room? It wouldn't make any sense. Don't try. It's not worth it. 
the point is that no one can keep a handle on their stuff. The other point of this movie is that if you're looking at the genre, like I said before, if if you're in a screwball, you must be crazy. And Palm Beach Story looks at it and says, "Well, we can we can pretend that Tom and Jerry are just a little a little odd." You know, as opposed to flat out insane. That what they want, what they're after is not is not crazy in and of itself. I think you can watch a movie like Bringing Up Baby and say like, you know, Maybe it's not crazy that Katherine Hepburn wants to spend more time with Cary Grant. And of course, we we have to understand his point of view, which is just, please stop the world, I would like to get off. You know, like you can you can understand it. I don't I don't understand anyone in this movie. All of these people are certifiable. Um I think you have to start with Judy Maxwell, who's played by Barbara Streisand. Um who at this point had won her Oscar already, so she's sort of the, the movie's big star. Um, she is playing someone who who has like a photographic memory, basically, just kind of knows everything. And the reason given is that she keeps dropping out of colleges and going to other ones. Her father, this mysterious father she has, wants her to finish somewhere, so she's done like every major at every school, like, across the country. She's like, I've been to Colorado State and Texas A&M and Bennington and, like, all of these schools. And she has studied all sorts of things, and she's never actually finished or graduated. Um, And she sets eyes on a musicologist um, named Howard Bannister, played by Ryan O'Neill, who is coming off of Love Story, which is an incredibly Chad move to make this this corny but hugely popular story, like this hugely popular movie um, about two college kids who fall in love despite the odds and then she gets cancer and dies on him. Like, he goes from that in one year and then two years later he is playing someone who hears the tagline from Love Story, which is love means never having to say you're sorry. And he looks at Barbara Streisand after she says, and he's like, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Like, that's that's the kind of movie we're getting into here. Um, he's playing Howard Bannister, who is this, who is a literal absent-minded professor. Um, he has a, he has a theory that Paleolithic man learned to make primitive harmonies using igneous rocks. So he's got the suitcase full of rocks that he carries around. And at one point, the taxi he's in like, makes a hard stop, and he's, like, really worried. He's like, I don't want my igneous rocks to get damaged. And the taxi driver looks at him and says, I hate it when anyone even touches my igneous rocks. Which is, like, they just sort of... They just sort of say his rocks all the time in a way that makes it very clear that they're not always talking about his igneous rocks that he's got in a suitcase, which... Like, it shouldn't be funny, but again, it, it is, it is, it is deeply funny. Um, he's very mild-mannered, he's, he's very clueless, he's being led around by the nose by his fiance, who's played by Madeline Kahn in a terrible wig. Um, his fiance's name is Eunice, and the first time that Judy hears Eunice's name, like, we see her in the background of a shot, and you can hear her say, Eunice? This is a person named Eunice, <laughs> which is exactly what we're all thinking at the time. Um, she decides very quickly 
that it is going to be her life's work to ensure that she gets Howard away from Eunice because she likes the look of him, whatever it is. She just decides that she wants him. And sort of in the same manner of Catherine Hepburn deciding, I'm going to do what I can to keep Cary Grant around, um, she decides she's going to, to do her best to keep Howard around, even though she calls him Steve. It's not really explained why she calls him Steve. She just is going to call him Steve and calls him Steve throughout most of the movie. Um, there is a much more aggressive way that she tries to, to peel Howard out, and it's by actively replacing Eunice as far as she can. So, like, in one moment after she's been in the drugstore, he's been sent to the drugstore to get aspirin for a headache, though he forgets multiple times why he's in the drugstore, uh, because he is this absent-minded, um... She comes out of the drugstore with him, and Eunice is very jealous and is like, who is this woman? Um, and and Judy says, come on, Steve, you can tell her about us. And Eunice is like, why is she calling you by that name? To which Howard says, don't pay any attention to her. Um, I swear this is a bizarre joke. And Judy says, sure, it's easy for you everywhere you go. Another heartbroken women, women, you call it joking. Eunice and I, we call it lust. <laughs> and it's this very... Like, there's a full broadside of, I'm going to peel this man away from his strange, unbalanced, is the word people keep using for her, <laughs> this strange, unbalanced little person um, who is stage managing his life. So they are, the suitcases, um, that, that, that accounts for two of them. Howard's got the one with the rocks and Judy's got the one with clothes. And then they happen to be in the same hotel. Um, Michael Murphy is on the hunt for one of them. Uh, he's the one who's chasing down government secrets. Basically at the end of the movie, he's like, the people have a right to know. So you can like get the sense that he's like a journalist or something. Um, and then the other one, there's like a jewel heist on in which Fritz, the, um, the, guy behind the counter at the hotel um, who's checking people in and all that he has a plan to steal to steal this the suitcase that he knows is full of, of jewelry and so he is like sending his guy around to like steal it and like carry it off and, and split the money with him the things obviously do not go well for them either if this sounds crazy just know that at the end of the movie Everyone tries to explain how things go to a judge, and the judge about loses his mind trying to figure out what is actually happening, which is another thing I really love about, which I really love about the movie, is like, it stops at the end for what you think is a synopsis of the film, and Howard is trying to explain what has been happening, um... But even the synopsis can't go right. Even the summary of this goes badly because his rival for a music grant is uh, Kenneth Mars with the world's most bizarre German accent um, playing a guy named Hugh. And, you know, you can see where this is going, but I will read this. Howard says, first, there was this trouble between me and Hugh. And the judge says, you and me? And Howard says, no, not you, Hugh. And then Hugh walks up and says, I am Hugh. <laughs> to which Judge Maxwell says, you are me? <laughs> like it sort of goes in this vein until eventually 
the judge is like, stop saying that. Make him stop saying that because he's already got like a mountain of anti-anxiety pills and like stomach treatments on his, on his, um, on the, on the bench with him. And he's like been taking all of them as people have been trying to explain what's going on. And something about this German guy saying, no, I am you is, is just the thing that completely sends him. Of course, this is not the, this is very Marx brothers, like where the turn is just as good as the original joke. What's great about this is that he turns out to be Judy's dad, which is something I really love. Like, Judy's been hiding under a blanket this whole time, and eventually someone points her out and she's like, hello, daddy. <laughs> and that's like, that is the actual joke, which you didn't realize was the joke for, for the longest time. I can come back and talk more about what I think is really exciting about this movie, but general thoughts on what's up, Doc, so far, which, yes, is named that because... When Howard and Judy first meet, she is eating a carrot that she is stolen off of a waiter's tray and says that to him. Uh, I need to watch this immediately. Also, <clears throat> I was just thinking about Madeline Kahn's 70s after Incredible. <laughs> which involves this, um, several Mel Brooks movies, including Blazing Saddles and Young Frankenstein, and the Muppet movie. And I have to think... This is just the funniest 70s, and also the one with the best names for any performer. <laughs> yeah, and of course Kenneth Mars and Young Frankenstein as well as um as the inspector. Like there there is something very there is something very Mel Brooks about this. Um I mean there's a lot I mean Buck Henry and Mel Brooks are, are not so distantly um you know so distant from one another, I guess I should say. But there's there's just this this very strange stuff that goes on in both of them, and, and just enough people have to take it seriously. And they're getting great performances. Like, I feel like Barbara Streisand, who, who of course, in, in the present day, I think all of us are like, oh, Barbara Streisand, the singer, or even Barbara Streisand, the director, or, or whatever. But, like, you watch her... You watch her in this and you really think, like, this woman is absolutely just as funny as Gene Wilder is in Young Frankenstein. Just the absolute command of the material uh, is is something really special to watch. Uh, I don't know, I mean, I don't think people get roles like this every day or anything, but I, I don't know that she's ever had a better one. Um, and, and that's really saying something because this doesn't even make her sing that much. Though when it does, it's really great. Because she sings um, You're the Top, that Cole Porter song, over the opening and closing credits. But with the closing credits, she has Ryan O'Neal. And Ryan O'Neal gets the line about You're the Nose. And, and she's like, hey. And he's like, of Jimmy Durante. She's like, oh, okay. Like, even, even the credit song will not stop for, for a joke. It is, it is this kind of movie. I, you know, you thought... Invoking too many cooks would doom this movie, but that it's so referential about its own performers, I, I think that just essentially evens out with the too many cooks vibes of the other ones. Like anything that's going to make jokes about previous roles or Streisand's nose or just <clears throat> who these people are outside of this movie as well, um, you know, just breaking that comedic fourth wall that. That has me hooked, too. So I think those two things canceled out if you were worried. 
I was definitely a little concerned. So that's that's um, the broad strokes, I think, of um, of what's up, Doc. Though I do want to just sort of talk about a little bit more why I think this is this is so smart and and so wonderful. And it has. I think it it sort of starts with Bogdanovich, who we talked about for last picture show. What feels like ages ago at this point. Um, of course, the last picture show is actually on the AFI list, and this this really should be on the AFI list. It's too funny not to be. But this particular um, this movie, like any other Bogdanovich movie, is very active in referencing slash thinking about movies of the past. So for for seventies. Uh, 70s film snobs, I guess. Bogdanovich is kind of a patron saint. The kind of guy who, like, went to the movies as a kid with a notebook and, like, had a note card for every movie with the director and, and the stars and the synopsis and everything, like, things that he thought were interesting. So, like, definitely the same kind of guy as Tarantino in a lot of ways, down to the sort of obnoxious personality. Um, and you can just sort of, you can tell that he's making a sort of love letter to those, to the old Hollywood, which is something he would keep doing with diminishing returns, unfortunately. Um, but it's something that he, he continues to do because I think he just really loves that old stuff so much. And it takes, it takes something really special to, to make a comedy, which isn't a spoof, but which is like, it is the genre Mel Brooks, I think, has made a Frankenstein movie, which is about as like at least as good as Frankenstein or Bride of Frankenstein. Like, but you can tell it's also like getting a lot of its humor from you know that these kind of things should be happening in um, in a Frankenstein movie, like that scene where where the monster looks at the little girl when she's like at the pond and she's like, oh dear, we're out of flowers. What will we throw in now? And he just like looks at the camera in this way of like, well, you've seen Frankenstein, the James Whale movie. You know that she's supposed to go in next. And this, this really doesn't rely on anything like that. Like there's not a moment where you get that sense of like, well, this happens like this. Because in, in such and such old screwball, it, it happened this way. Like, it, it really does take the rules of the genre, which is it helps if you have some, some object that people are on the lookout for. It helps if everybody is kind of crazy. It helps if the main characters want to bang each other. And just you, it just takes those as rules and goes with it. And so this would except for the color in Barbara Streisand, I guess, this this wouldn't feel out of place in 1942. Like, this could show up on the same bill as, as Palm Beach Story, and it would make sense, which I think is is a really wonderful accomplishment. And and the fact that it, you know, seems to be, like, making homages to your, to your screwball, like, if you think about bringing a baby, like, how many people do you know are paleontologists... Just the same way as, like, how many people do you know are musicologists? Um, like, there's there are little things like that that you're like, oh, yeah, they had to get that detail from somewhere. You know, just pick your obscure profession and go. But what I like about this is that it really is playing it straight. And I say that very loosely, but it's it's playing the idea straight and not 
not messing around with it. It's not updating it. It's just making another one. And that's a kind of boldness that you don't often see where people are very willing to say, I'll make my riff on it. But to just make another one is a lot harder, um, a lot riskier. And this one, this one absolutely pays off in droves because it is, it is just as funny and just as ridiculous as, as any other screwball comedy I can think of. Except this one also ends with an extended car chase in San Francisco, um, which of co- which, if anything, is just sort of calling out Bullet. I think <laughs> like this just it ends with all of these cars chasing each other, obliterating of of a VW bus. Um, there's an absolutely tremendous sequence where there's a guy hanging up a banner across both sides of the street, and he's on a ladder. And you're expecting a car to come get the ladder, but it never, it it doesn't happen until the right moment, at which point he then goes through a sheet of glass that two guys have been carrying back and forth across the street for what feels like half an hour at that point. There's a certain perfection in that. And there's also this, this wonderful moment where Barbara Streisand and Ryan O'Neill, who are on, like, a delivery bike, basically. He's, like, riding in the front, like, where the sandwiches or pizza should go. He sees this this parade, like a, a parade in Chinatown, and just looks at it and says, Oh, no. Because <laughs> he, knows, he knows as well as we do that something terrible is going to happen. And the terrible thing that happens is that they take, like, the dragon thing, like, and they, like, end up wearing that and dragging that down the street. And she's like, I can't see. What are what what are you looking at? It's like, I don't know. I'm inside a dragon. <laughs> which is which is the right response for that kind of moment. Anyway, that's what that's what I really appreciate about it. It's just like it is it is not an update. It just is a version of something which you thought the last word was from nineteen fifty nine when some like it hot comes out and it turns out there is a last word after the last word. I don't think that oh no moment is unlike, <clears throat> say, some of the moves in Young Frankenstein, mm-hmm. or like those, you know what happens here next um, kind of moments. But I mean, I do love the joy of just like, it doesn't have to be I don't know, ironic at all. Like, this is, this is the movie that it is. And even those gestures, like, that are preying upon some like conventional knowledge that an audience might have. Like, it's just funny. It's not to update the genre, so to speak, just like young Frankenstein isn't really updating horror. It's just like, it's a love letter to it as much as anything. But so yeah, I, I just, I greatly appreciate any movie that's just like, yeah, let's have fun. And this like, doesn't matter how the suitcases get mixed up, but that's the joke and the joke is going to go. And I mean, that's how you're setting up all of these movies, I think, but there's just a pure joy to that that I really appreciate. Um, not to derail this totally. I'll talk about it. Assuming you keep young Frankenstein in in an episode, which you better because I have a lot of thoughts, (laughs) but there's no Mel Brooks on this list. And that's not enough Mel Brooks. (laughs) You mean the AFI one or me? Well, you only have one, but there's not on the AFI, which I don't know, man. I guess I'm not the best like judge of what these lists should be, having not seen enough. But I, I don't. He has some, 
he has some really good stuff, and I just think it would sit very nicely along some of these, alongside some of these screwballs. I think, I think Mel Brooks, if if you're making a top 100, I certainly understand the logic for Young Frankenstein, Blazing Saddles, the producers. At least one, if not multiple, of those. Like I, I definitely. Not, not like Spaceballs or Robin Hood Men in Tights, like the later stuff, like whatever. But like one of those three, you sort of hope sneaks in. Um, even if it's not high, I, I definitely kind of think maybe maybe if somebody wanted to give Mel Brooks like an Oscar for, for one of those, that would have sealed the deal. But I guess that's the issue. Sort of like What's Up, Doc? Um, I think I need to, to double check on this. But like the film itself just turned into, like, a really big hit. Um, but I don't think... I don't think it has, like, a, a serious Oscar... Um, a serious Oscar track record or anything like that. I don't know about its Oscars, but I did run the inflation numbers, if you're interested in those. Yeah. Because it was a big box office success. Um, before the, I do that, I, I'll also say I think Mel Brooks gets shafted by the AFI, and that airplane isn't on here as criminal. Um, well, we'll talk about airplane. Yeah, I know you have that one coming up. I just... Ah, anyway, um, inflation calculator. So, it cost about $4 million to make, and in today's money, that's a little under twenty-six million, and grossed sixty-six. I mean, you can see the difference from four to sixty-six in itself, but that would be about four hundred and twenty-five million today. So, this is, this makes money hand over fist, really. Yeah. So the the best picture field, not to like make this this episode weird, but the best picture field for seventy-two, of course, The Godfather and Cabaret. Um, but also Deliverance and Sounder and The Emigrants. And The Emigrants, in case that one is not ringing a bell for you, is the first half of a double film of sorts, uh, The Emigrants in the New Land by Jan Troll, who, and, and this one, again, this is a Swedish movie. I think it is a spectacular movie. It is one of the great movies of the 70s. Not really sure why they thought they needed to pepper the Oscars with the emigrants. Um, I mean, Sounder is good. Deliverance is is good. Like, I, I'm not necessarily upset that any of those five got a Best Picture nomination, but, like, zero nominations at all for What's Up, Doc? Feels feels like a, like a bad overcorrection. So it's also the year of Last House on the Left and the Poseidon Adventure, so mm-hmm. to me this is just a very interesting genre year. <laughs> Like, everything has something. And Poseidon Adventure, of course, is Oscar-nominated in multiple ways. Yeah, it's a... 72 gets the gets the Godfather, you know, shine on it, but there is definitely a lot of stuff that works, um, even outside of that big movie. Like, you, you sort of follow the, the card beneath that, and there's, there's an awful lot that is very exciting. Other other things to say about what's up, Doc? Before we head to the the chalk it out portion. No, I think this one's close um, because both of these sound really fun. So I'm excited for the spiel here, and I think ready to hear what it is. 
All right, so uh, the original AFI movie this week is The Marx Brothers in Duck Soup, which is directed by Leo McCary. Good job, Leo McCary, even though this isn't necessarily about you. Um, the film is a strange, wonderful, and wacky ride through the Marx Brothers doing international diplomacy, and for that reason, our theme is zany, brainy, in which weird things happen and funny things happen, but there's also an intelligence in the movie, which I think adds to the to the overall quality. So our first option is The Palm Beach Story by Preston Sturgis from 42, a movie which is very funny because it it definitely limits the amount of weirdness in the people who spend the most time on screen. The n number one, number two, and number three in terms of screen time and uh, for Colbert, McRae, and Valley are, are all playing basically normal people who have some who have some quirks or, or ticks or whatever. But but for the most part, they're pretty normal, and Sturgis makes up for it by putting absolutely crazy people around them. Um, people who you genuinely wonder how they get through the day without harming themselves or others. But the, the film is, is so smart because it is commenting on screwballs themselves and on movies themselves, setting up this, again, I'm going to use the word sinister, this kind of sinister opening set to the William Tell Overture, um, in which Claudette Colbert appears to have locked her her twin sister in a closet so she can take her place and marry another man, uh, the person who her sister is supposed to, to marry herself. And, I mean, the movie doesn't rule out that maybe the Joel McRae character did not, you know, get, a, get the leap on his own twin brother because his brother's not at the wedding either. Um, maybe he got the leap on him and tried to, to marry the girl that he wanted, and it turns out they got the wrong person. So, like, the movie is is definitely taking a little swipe at the start, and then in putting the two of them together, because they can't really be allowed to, to separate by the end of this movie, because Hayes Code, etc., um, the film has to go to incredible lengths of saying there was a twin, and that's the only way that they can get themselves out of a scenario, which really doesn't make sense to, to fix otherwise. Like, Tom and Jerry really ought to go their separate ways, but they don't. And and the movie has to make up a silly reason for that. Um, on top of that, uh, Sturges is doing really wonderful commentary about the wealthy. Um, basically every rich person in this movie is a dingbat. It's, it's a movie that is very, very smart on multiple levels, from the structural level to the political commentary. And then in What's Up, Doc, uh, Peter Bogdanovich's screwball from, from 30 years later, there is a wisdom that this film has, which is to say we can dial up everything to 11. Um, we can have a lengthy car chase in which it's really three or four cars chasing a bike, which ends up chasing a VW bug, and all of them end up in San Francisco Bay. Like, there's a certain level of, like, genius and, and insanity in that, and there's a certain level of genius in the writing by Buck Henry, in the performances, the, the winky, toothy performance from Barbara Streisand, the absolutely straight arrow, 
like, why does it always happen to me, Ryan O'Neill performance, Madeline Kahn leaning all the way into a human being named Eunice. Like, all of these things are, are very perfectly done. But there's also something audacious and very smart about just saying, we don't have to riff on this genre. The genre is good enough, strong enough, um, and we are, as a creative team, good enough, strong enough that we don't have to, you know, we don't have to, like, play for jokes about what the form is. We have a good enough thing on our hands that we're just going to go with what we've got and make that happen. So those are, those are our two choices, The Palm Beach Story and What's Up Doc, two movies that I think are just endlessly funny, really great watches. You could watch Duck Soup, Palm Beach Story, and, uh, and What's Up Doc in less than five hours pretty easily, but you might not survive till the end uh, because you might die uh, laughing what do you think? That sounds like a hell of a five hours. And as much as I believe in the power of the albums I talked about in the first half, <clears throat> certainly a more enjoyable five hours in traditional senses of that word. Um, this is another one of those where like, I want both to go through just because I do have a particular fondness for this type of film. And just for the comedy stuff in general, like, I know that's a cudgel I keep bringing back, but um, it does speak to me. I think, right, as I mentioned there, like, additional elements, shall we say, of both that I think even out for me in the end, but that I think are unique to both, and I really like those. Um, I'm going to introduce another uh, exchange from Duck Soup that makes sense to me in terms of my decision, and hopefully I can make it make sense to everyone else <clears throat> so this is mostly firefly talking and now members of the cabinet will take up old business sit down that's new business no old business very well we'll take up new business too late that's old business already sit down and i'm going with that's what's up doc for that reason because of how you were selling it as sort of bucking this like doesn't really matter if it's old or new like the joke is the joke, the humor is the humor, the funny is the funny, and let's just crank it up and see what happens. Um, so, I mean, I like that sense in terms of zany brainy of, like, turning the brain zany itself to the point where none of this actually makes sense, but it's just such a good ride that that, that becomes kind of what makes the movie special. Um, so again, like it doesn't matter if it's an old genre, if it's old business, it doesn't matter if you're trying to make it subversive or like definitively new in some way. And as much as I love that stuff, as interesting as it sounds in the Palm Beach story, and genuinely so, like I don't, there's just something about like a return in '72 to like, yeah, let's just be funny and zany again, and like just yank it up even more, take advantage of whatever new people and like effects we might have. Let's run people into a dragon and a parade in Chinatown and just let them sail. Um, so yeah, I'm going with what's up doc here, but I, I pour one out for the Palm beach story. <laughs> yeah. I, I think really could not have gone wrong either way. I, I, I believe. And it feels like to me that I have somehow, like, at, at, on one hand, I feel like all I did for the past, like, hour and change was just recite jokes from these three movies, but there are also 
there are so many jokes that like I just like sit here and think about these movies and I'm like I didn't mention this one at all. Like I'm just going to I'm going to leave our listeners with an image from What's Up Doc that I love in which Fritz the guy behind the behind the desk at the hotel says that his accomplice needs to go forward and use his charm to like distract the old woman with the jewels. And so the camera just sort of follows and he's like muttering like charm to himself. And the next shot is this is this wide shot where you can see the whole room. There's no one else in it. The old woman is walking in his direction and the guy just sticks out his leg and doesn't just trip the old woman. He like I don't it's like he like gives her the the clothesline with it and she just collapses. It's it's not just a trip. It is so much more than that. And it's just it's a, such a good such a good use of the form, of using editing to tell the joke, of using cinematography to tell the joke, and just the remarkable physical presence of these actors. And it happens more or less without words. So what's up, Doc? If this is one that you have not found before, just all the way suggest that you should. If, if Palm Beach Story is new to you, another one just all the way. Go, go find it. Um, and of course, the same goes for Duck Soup. Um, but... Just three incredibly witty, funny movies. Really recommend all three. Um, not like I don't always recommend all three or, you know, at least two of the movies every time out. Um, but not all of them are this much fun. And I, I think having a little fun with, with the movies is hardly a bad thing. So, for the theme of Zany Brainy, uh, based on the AFI film Duck Soup, uh, Matt has gone with What's Up Doc, uh, a movie that I think might be near and dear to his heart without him ever having seen it. So if you are interested in other episodes like this, for example, part one, where we talked about Kierkegaard, but what was originally labeled depression, uh, if you really want the full scope of things, um, thinking about how Elliot Smith and the Marx Brothers go together, you can listen to the first half of this episode. If you are interested in finding his Spotify, my letterboxed, either one of our blogs, if you want to find, um, more information about the two of us. We have an about me section on subtitlespodcast.com where all of the other uh, links and tidbits previously mentioned can be found. We will see you next time.